Father, we thank you um, that we're your children. We thank you that you've adopted us. God, that we're free. Uh, God, we're free from our sin. We're free from fear. We're free from um, all the chains that once bound us. God, we're free from the idols of our lives. God, that you, Jesus, have set us free. And we're not just free to be free. We're free to be children. And thank you that you've made us children, sons and daughters, most high God. Lord, I pray that as we open your word together, you speak to us through your word. God, this is a big deal that you have set your word for us to read, to to lead us, to guide us, to teach us, to correct us, to convict us, to encourage us. And I pray right now as we open your word, speak, Holy Spirit, speak through me, my broken vessel. I don't deserve to be up here, but Lord, we know when your word is open and your word is preached that you speak. As we trust you this morning, we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, y'all have a seat. Welcome. Open your Bibles if you have them uh, to Acts chapter 2. We are going to be in Acts for a couple more weeks, all right? Um, So just settle in. Um, Acts chapter 2. And those of you that are new with us or um, join us the past couple weeks, we are in a series through the book of Acts that's going to take us well through next year. Um, And one of the things that we do here uh, at CBC Richmond Hill is that we preach through books of the Bible. It's called expository preaching. Um, it's one of the distinctives that we have, and the reason we do it is because we firmly believe that Coleman Collins and Andrew McClure have nothing good to say to you, okay? Um, I, if it were me up here trying to give you a rousing talk uh, to motivate you in your Christian life, then you might as well go home. We want to hear from God and His Word, and, and praise God, He has given us His Word so that we can know what truth is, so we can know how to live and how to follow Him. So we're going to go through books of the Bible, and right now we are four weeks into the book of Acts I'm going to set my timer up here so I don't go over. Um, You're welcome. Uh, So we're four weeks into the book of Acts, and these first four weeks are pretty foundational uh, because as Luke is writing this narrative of what the church continued to do and teach, he's giving some big hits. So we we had Jesus who told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for what? Can I remember? The Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit to come, and there are going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? So that's that's the thesis statement of the book of Acts. And then they waited and they replaced Judas with Matthias. And then this week we have the giving of the Holy Spirit. This is a massive moment in Acts. And so um, this sermon is going to be a little bit more um, teaching. Okay, we got to lay a foundation. So it's going to be a little bit less application. So just prepare for that. Some of these early sermons are going to feel like a fire hydrant, okay, in your face. Have you ever felt that before? I sure haven't. But um, but that's what it might feel like at the beginning. So just kind of prep you for that. But we're going to read this text together. So look with me, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Who? The disciples, the 120 followers of Christ, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is the scene. On the day of Pentecost, they're gathered together in a house, 120 of them. That's a hot house, right? 120 people in a house. The big house is near the temple. And they're praying. They're still waiting. They've been waiting for 10 days on the promise of the Holy Spirit. So they're waiting around praying. And outside, it says when the day of Pentecost arrived, that was a huge feast day in Israel. Outside, the streets are thronging with people that are going to the temple to offer their loaves to God, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. So they are not where they're supposed to be. Because God told them to wait. They're sitting in a house 
praying and waiting on the Lord. And then out of nowhere, this sound like a mighty rushing wind comes. And, and this big ball of flames comes in and it divides and it goes over their head like tongues of fire. It's a crazy scene. And then they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they start speaking in other tongues, right? Like this is freaky, okay? This is not normal. Has anyone ever experienced that before? Any of that? I haven't. Okay, this is not normal. So verse 5, let's jump back in. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. So zoom out a little bit. In Jerusalem, there are Jews dwelling, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, what sound? The mighty rushing wind and these disciples who are pouring out into the streets, babbling in other tongues, okay? It's a crazy scene. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? Crazy scene, right? There's Jews here from all these nations, and these nations and these cities were representing all around the sea right there. So it was the, kind of the interconnected known world at that time. There are Jews who are dwelling in Jerusalem. Why are they dwelling in Jerusalem? They're not just here for the feast. Um, there was this prophecy in Daniel that said that the Messiah was going to come after 70 weeks. And those weeks represented years. So after 70 times 7 years, Messiah was going to come. So all these Jews from these cities moved to Jerusalem to wait on the Messiah. These are devout Jews waiting on the Messiah. So they're gathered together from all these places. And all of a sudden, they're hearing the disciples preach the gospel and share the mighty works of God in their own native language. It's in a crazy scene. They have no idea what's going on. And later on in Acts chapter 2, we find out there's about probably three to 5,000 people gathered around them, Right? It's like 225 people in this room. I think about 3,000 people gathering around these disciples, hearing the gospel. It's a crazy scene. So in this passage, uh, we have two movements of the passage. It's going to kind of outline us for this morning. The first movement is verses 1 through 4, and it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the disciples. As he falls on them as they're waiting, and he fills them up, it's his ministry to the disciples. And then the next movement is verse 5 through 18, which we're going to read later, which is the ministry or the mission of the Holy Spirit through his disciples, okay? So the first movement, verse 1 through 4, ministry to the disciples. The second movement is his mission through the disciples. And in each one of these, there are two primary signs. So in verses 1 through 4, the two primary signs are the law and fire, okay? Tongues of fire. In the second one, the two primary signs are tongues in Joel's prophecy, Okay? Y'all with me? So that's the outline for this morning. We're going to have four points. But before we jump in, we're going to start somewhere else. Okay? Um, how many of you uh, who are married, married into a family with history? Family history. Anybody? I shouldn't have raised my hand. My wife's sitting on the front row. Um, if you've married into a family with family history, then you know what I'm about to say. Uh, when you're, you're coming in, you're, you're newly married. Okay? Some of you are going to have to zoom way back for that. Uh, you're newly married, and you walk in, and you're trying to connect with the family. Okay? So they're talking, you walk into the, the living room, they're talking about something, you sit down, you listen for a couple of minutes, and if you're like me, you want to jump in, and you're like, I'm tracking with you, and so you jump into the conversation, okay? And the second you jump in, you quickly realize you said the wrong thing, right? Like you just stuck your foot into a pile of something, and everyone goes quiet, right? And you just want to like sink through your chair into the floor, right? Why? History, 
right, background. You didn't know what you were saying, and you just offended someone in the room, and you have no idea who you offended, right, because there was a background you didn't know, and you made an ignorant assumption, and you jumped right in. Sometimes that can happen to us with Scripture. We don't know the background. We're not Jewish. Well, some of you are, but most of us aren't Jewish, and even if you are Jewish, you weren't around 2,000 years ago. We don't know the background, and so it's really helpful. Sorry. Um, So we're going to get a little bit of background before we jump in. Um, So Pentecost. Who knows what the day of Pentecost was? Anybody? The Feast of Weeks, okay? And Pentecost, the Feast of of Weeks, was 50 days or seven weeks after the Feast of Firstfruits. And the Feast of Firstfruits was three days after Passover, okay? You all with me in this timeline? So we're, we're talking about a grand total of 53 days here. So what happened this year on Passover? Anybody? Yes, Egypt happened 1,400 years ago. What happened this year at Pentecost? Jesus died, okay, on Passover. Three days later, what happened on the Feast of first fruits? Just like the first fruits of the barley harvest, he came from the ground, he raised from the dead, right? And then 50 days later, on the second Feast of first fruits, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, what happens? Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down, and the greater harvest, the first fruit of the church, when 3,000 souls came to know the Lord, came to fruition, right? Think that was an accident? No. It's God's plan from the beginning. But there's something else cool. What else in Jewish history happened on the day of Pentecost? Anybody know? Quiet audience. The giving of the law. Okay? The giving of the law happened on Pentecost 1,400 years before this moment. And this is a much more significant comparison. So I'm going to take a second, and we're going to compare these two, Pentecost 34 AD and Pentecost 1400 BC and look and see what God's done there. So in Egypt, four days before Passover, the Israelites are enslaved. They've been enslaved for 430 years. They're in Egypt. Moses comes. He does nine miracles or plagues. Pharaoh's not letting them go. They're on the 10th plague, right? The killing of the firstborn son. And before that happens, God tells the Israelites to take what into their home? Perfect lamb, okay? I'm going to keep doing this, so y'all better get interactive. Take a perfect lamb into their home, okay? So they take it in their home on the 10th of Nisan, which is the Jewish month, and they keep it there for four days to examine it. And on the fourth day, the 14th of Nisan, Passover day, what do they do with that lamb? They slaughter it at twilight, and they paint the blood of that lamb over the doorposts and lintels of their house. They go to sleep that night. The angel of death passes over Egypt, and, it, and, it, and it, God's wrath is poured out on Egypt unless... You were covered by the blood of the perfect lamb, right? 1,400 years later, Christ, our Passover lamb, comes into Jerusalem and into the temple, God's house, on the 10th of Nisan. He's examined in the temple for four days by the priests and by the Sadducees and by the Pharisees. On the fourth day, the 14th of Nisan, Passover, he's slaughtered, and his blood covers his people. So that when the wrath of God comes, we are not held accountable for our sins but we're set free from our slavery to sin, just like the, the Israelites were set free from slavery in Egypt, right? So three days later, he rises from the dead, right? And so what happens in, in Egypt is God's people are set free. So God leads Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness with what? What two signs did he lead them with? A pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, right? And they follow the manifest presence of God for 40 days, and he leads them to Mount Sinai, and he tells them to stop, and then God says, wait here, camp out here, and wait on me, and then come up the mountain and meet with me, and then God ascends Mount Sinai, right? 
Jesus, after he raises from the dead, he meets with his disciples for 40 days and he leads them in person. And then he takes them to another mountain, the Mount of Olives. And they go up the mountain and Jesus says, hey, wait for me in Jerusalem for the giving of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus ascends into heaven, right? So back at Mount Sinai, the Israelites are waiting. They're waiting for three days on the promise of the law. And then God calls them to go up the mountain. And so the 70 elders and Moses go up the mountain and they meet with God. And God appears to them with a loud rushing wind and fire and lightning and smoke. And he appears to them and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. You are going to be my people and I'm going to be your God forever. Right? The same way the disciples wait in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit comes with a loud rushing wind and fire and he fills them and it is God's mark on his church saying, I'm going to be your God from now on and you're going to be my people. And from that moment on, in Israel at Mount Sinai, God, instead of leading his people from out in front, he comes and dwells in the what? Tabernacle in their midst. He dwells inside their camp instead of leading them from the front. And God makes a covenant with Israel, making them his first community on earth. 1,400 years later, instead of leading them by Jesus himself in front of them, the Holy Spirit comes and he dwells in our midst, inside of our hearts, his temple, who is us. And he leads us from within, and he makes a covenant with the church, who is his second community on earth, and he binds himself to us for all eternity. Praise God, right? It's not an accident, right? That's not, that's not just something that happened. This isn't something the church made up. This is something that has been here in the word this whole time. And, and let me tell you something cool. Jesus didn't line up his life with the Exodus, okay? God didn't think, oh, wouldn't that be cool if Jesus' life could match up with the freedom of Israel from slavery? He lined up the Exodus with Christ's life, right? Because Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. It was in God's plan from the beginning that mankind, Adam and Eve, were going to sin against him and rebel and break relationship, that he was going to call Israel, but Israel was going to rebel too. He was going to need to send a Savior, And in his plan from the beginning, he laid out the exodus so that Christ could come and fulfill it with a greater exodus, the freedom of his church from slavery to sin, that we could be a redeemed people, his church, set free to bring his gospel to the nations. Right? Y'all with me on that? Praise God. That's the family history that we're diving into this text with this morning. And I am three minutes ahead. Yes. All right. I talked fast. I know. I needed to go fast, though. All right. So what I'm going to do is we're going to jump into our first sign of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to his people, okay? And that first sign is the law. So I want you to look with me at Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. So this this prophecy in Jeremiah, uh, a little bit of background, was written dead center in between the exodus, the first exodus in Israel, and the second exodus in Jerusalem. And this is what Jeremiah says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is what Jeremiah is saying. Jeremiah is saying that just as God gave the law to Israel to confirm the covenant, to tell them how they were supposed to live to please God, right? because he's got this new nation, Israel, 
And he wants to tell them how to live to please him. Just like that, instead of the law now, we're led by who? The Spirit, right? And he says, I'm going to write that law on their hearts. What does he mean by that? It means that the Spirit is now dwelling inside of us. The Spirit supersedes the law. We're not under the law anymore, praise God. You don't have to obey 600 and some commands. If you were, then men, you'd have long, ringly sideburns, okay? And you'd be wearing a hat right now, okay? And a, and a scraggly beard, right? We're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. But how are we led? We're led by the Spirit. Because just that they did now, we need to know how to walk in holiness. We're God's covenant people. We need to know how to live to please Him. And so we're given the Spirit who supersedes the law. In John 14, 26, Jesus says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The first thing He does is He supersedes the law and He comes and makes a home within His children to teach us and to lead us. My question is, Andrew's been talking about this a lot, my question is, how does He lead us in secondary matters? Okay? So there's a lot that's pretty clear in Scripture. Right? A, lot of, a lot of stuff that we can, I can give you a passage and a verse for what you're supposed to do in that situation. Like, don't yell at your kids, okay? Got a passage and a verse for that one. Don't, don't sleep outside of marriage, right? I got a passage and a verse. Don't murder someone. Got a, got a verse for that, right? Go to church. Got a passage for that one. There's a lot of stuff that's pretty clear, but most of your life lives in the gray, right? It's pretty unclear. Um, like, what, what job am I supposed to take? Who am I supposed to marry? What am I, how am I supposed to train my kids? How am I supposed to disciple them? What am I supposed to do with my aging parents? What, what are, and, and there's a lot of these things that are unclear in the scriptures. How does the Holy Spirit, our new law written on our hearts, lead us? Um, so I was thinking about this earlier this week as I was preparing this. I, I'm awful with directions. Anyone else awful with directions? Okay, I can't find my way out of a wet paper bag, okay? I'm just terrible at it, and my wife can attest to it. And um, whenever I have a 20-minute rule when I'm driving to a new place, for every 20 minutes of the trip, I don't have to make one U-turn, right? So don't ever get in a car with me on a long trip, right? Because we're going to make a lot of U-turns because I keep missing my turn, right? I was thinking about directions um, and the advent or the evolution of directions to get somewhere. So let's say you wanted to go on a date night to um, the vault in Savannah because there's no good restaurants down here, you tell me. Um, so you want to go to the vault. We went to the papaya last night. It was amazing. Um, you, you go to the vault. You want to get there. 30 years ago, how do you get to the vault? What do you pull out? A map, okay? You unfold that sucker, right? It's huge, right? And you find your starting point, and then you find your ending point, and you, sometimes you get a highlighter or a pencil, and you make your way there, and then you give it to whoever in the passenger seat, and you, and you go the route, right? 25 years ago, you want to get somewhere. What do you pull out? MapQuest, thank you. Yes, MapQuest. Go to askjeeves.com, type in MapQuest. It takes you there. You type your destination. It gives you like a little blue highlight line. Right? And you print off, and it's got step-by-step -step instructions. And you print that page out. You got it in the car with you, right? Step, turn by turn, baby, right? The problem is with MapQuest, if you miss your turn, what happens? You're done. Because that's... <laughs> Who tried to read that tiny little MapQuest map on your page? Like, you're like looking at it. You can't read it, right? So you might as well turn around and go home, right? Because you're done. 20 years ago, what'd you pull out? TomTom. -tom. Anybody have a TomTom -tom or a Garmin? Right, we had a TomTom, -tom, right? So TomTom -tom gave you turn-by-turn real-time instructions. And if you missed your turn, what did it do? Rerouted. It took five minutes to reroute, but it rerouted you, right? And it took you a different way. And whenever you went over the speed limit, what did it do? Anybody have a mooing TomTom? -tom? Oh, well, I, I, okay. Our TomTom -tom mooed at us. Like, literally made the sound of a cow when we went over the speed limit, right? So that's what a TomTom -tom did. And now, 15 years ago, what do, we, what do we pull out? Our phones, right? It's in our pocket, convenient. 
Whenever we need to know anything, we just type it in, and we can go wherever we want, whenever we want to. And the question is, how does the Holy Spirit lead us? Is it like a map? Right? We pull out our map, right? and, we, and we, we trace our route, and then we follow it. Is he like MapQuest? Do we spend a lot of time fasting and praying, and then he downloads the instructions to us? And then we try to walk him out, and if we miss a turn, then we're outside the will of God, we might as well head home. Is that it? Or is he like the TomTom or the Garmin, like turn by turn? And if we miss it, if we sin one day, then he's going to reroute us, right? And we can go a different way, and he moves at us when we sin, right? Is that what it's like? Um, or he's like our iPhone, like always there with us, like we memorize the word, and he's always like speaking to us in our ear and, and telling us where to go. Is that, is that what he's like? Well, surprise, he's not like any of that, okay? What if, let's flip the script a little bit, what if I knew the city? What if I knew the city? Um, so I lived in Savannah for two and a half years. I knew how to get around. I didn't need a map to tell me how to get to the vault. I knew how to get to the vault. Savannah's a grid, right? I knew exactly where to go, how to get there. If I missed my turn, I could reroute myself. I didn't need it, right? I didn't need a map because I knew the city. I've lived in Richmond Hill two months. I know the city, right? Two roads, boom, done, right? I was here two days. I didn't need a map. Like, I know how to get around, right? I knew the city. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit helps us to know God. We know his heart. We know his mind. We know his will. We know his kingdom. We know what he did in the scriptures, and we know what he's doing now. Right? And as the Holy Spirit sits in us, as, as we mature in our faith, Jeremiah 31 says that we shall all know him from the least of us to the greatest. If I know the city, I don't need a map because I know my way around. If you know God, if, you, if you're a Christian, you're getting to know him in his word, and you're getting to know him in prayer and in worship and among his people, then you're going to know the Father. And as you walk through life, as you're with your kids or with your parents or at your work or at the gym, you're going to know, the, the longer you're with the Lord, you're going to know what to do. You're going to know what he would have you do. You're going to be able to walk with him in power. That is the new covenant. That is the spirit and what he does in us. That is how he leads us to please and honor God. So the first ministry of the Holy Spirit is to help us know God and live a life that pleases him. Okay? Second sign, okay, is fire. We read it again. All right? And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're going to ask a bunch of questions here. Like, why fire? And why the wind? And why, why speaking in tongues? And why did God wait 10 days? But I think the key thing here that we want to look at pertaining to the Holy Spirit is the fire. So as God was leading Israel to Mount Sinai, and as he dwelled in their tabernacle, God's presence took two forms. We already said it. What were the two forms? Fire and cloud, okay? Believe it or not, there's no cloud in this passage. Why is there no cloud? There's just fire. The cloud represented the fact that God, we couldn't know God. Israel couldn't know God. They were sinful. And if God were to look at them, it would destroy them. And the cloud represented the fact that God was concealing himself from them, that they didn't know the fullness of revelation to God. There's no cloud here because the veil has been torn. The Holy of Holies is open. You and me and every believer now has access to our Father. We can come to know God and not be destroyed, right? Because we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. And God is in the act now of revealing himself to his people through the Holy Spirit, not withholding himself from them like a cloud, right? But fire, what's the second one? Why does he come in fire? Well, Deuteronomy 4.24 tells us this. So this is in the same scene that God is giving Israel the law. Okay, So he's, he's up on the mountain with Moses, giving him the law for 40 days. And he says this, he says, For the Lord your God 
is a consuming fire, a jealous God. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So I remember the first time, I distinctly remember in middle school, the first time I read this verse in middle school, it's like, ooh, God's jealous? Yuck. And my paradigm was what? Like sixth grade girlfriends and boyfriends, right? And like that type jealousy, that petty jealousy, it doesn't let you talk with your friends or go hang out somewhere else, that, that consuming jealousy. That's not God, right? He's a righteous kind of jealousy. It's the jealousy of a wayward father for his wayward kids. The jealousy for a wife towards her wayward husband, right? It is a burning jealousy that wants their good, that wants their holiness, wants their purity in life because they know what's best for them. That's the kind of jealousy God has for us. And his jealousy is like a consuming fire. So not only is he jealous for you, he's jealous for your affections. God is jealous for your heart. He's jealous for your, for your desires. He's also able to do something about it. He's a consuming fire. So when the Holy Spirit comes and he dwells inside of his people, he begins to consume what is earthly in you. He begins to consume your overlove for your car or for money or for your house or for your kids. He begins to consume addictions to alcohol or pornography. He begins to consume what is earthly in you if you let him. He begins to burn it away so that you can be a pure vessel, ready to worship him, to walk with him, to love him, to know him. And praise God he's jealous. Amen? Because he wasn't jealous, I don't know where I'd be. If he wasn't a God that chased me down when I wandered, think about your life. Think about the amount of times God has chased you down when you've been hard-headed, when you've been walking away from him. Maybe right now you're in a season where God is chasing you down. He's filling you with conviction. You're miserable because you're walking in sin. You're chasing this world. You're trying to find satisfaction here when it's not found here. Praise God, he's a jealous God that he chases us down and he consumes what's earthly in us. And this is the second ministry of the Spirit in our life. Let me say something on this. It's not automatic. Like just because you have the Holy Spirit doesn't mean he's sanctifying you. Like we can resist him. We can grieve him. We can quench him. We cannot listen to his voice. We can harden our hearts. And so the call for us this morning is soften your hearts. Listen to the Spirit. Pick up his word. Start reading it. Start listening. When, when I'm preaching, when Andrew's preaching, and something stirs in your heart, don't push it down. Talk to people about it. Pray about it. Dig in and let the Holy Spirit lead you. So the second way the Holy Spirit ministers to us is to purify us from the inside. So just real quick, I want to give a word of application on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, after this, these two ministries of the Holy Spirit to us, I think sometimes, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, I think sometimes we can cast our view of our father, our parents, our, our boss onto God. And God's not like a strict teacher. He's not like an angry boss. He's not like a demanding father. The Holy Spirit is gracious and patient and long-suffering with you. He's compassionate. Let me just t- tell you some scripture on this. So when you struggle The Holy Spirit is interceding for you to the Father with groans too deep for words. When you sin, he grieves, but he doesn't leave. When you reject the Holy Spirit's promptings, he's quenched, but he doesn't die out. When you're hard-headed, he's patient and persevering. When you doubt God's love for you, the Holy Spirit witnesses with your spirit that you're a child of God. When you're afraid and alone, he cries, Abba, Father. When you're wayward, he convicts you. When you're sad, he comforts you. When you're lost, he guides you. When you're confused, he counsels you. And all these things, they start with faith. They don't automatically happen. You only experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit when you look to him when you're sad. 
You only experience the leading of the Holy Spirit when you ask him when you're confused. You only experience the reassurance of him when you cry out to him in the middle of your doubt. You only experience his counsel when you ask him when you're lost. God didn't save you, call you to be holy, and send you off to go live your best life now. God dwells within you to purify you, to make you like him, to lead you in the Christian life. And Christian, our call is to listen to him, read his word, go before him in prayer, and follow his command as he works in us. All right, so that's the first. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to his people. The second movement is the mission of the Holy Spirit through his people. So we already read it. These Jews are dwelling in Jerusalem, right? And there's devout men from all these places all around. And it lists like 12 or 13 different nations and languages that are here. The Holy Spirit falls and he speaks in tongues through his people. So it's saying other tongues. They're speaking in tongues. And so that's the first sign of the mission of the Holy Spirit through us is tongues, okay? And before I jump in, just want to tell you, I'm not going to talk about the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, okay? This is different. All right, that, that seemed to be a prayer language or something where someone was praying to God and they were speaking with their mouth a language they didn't understand, and yet God heard them. And sometimes in the church there was an interpretation. That's not this, okay? This is a sign of other languages. So when they spill out into the streets, people are hearing them not babble randomly in a spiritual language. They're hearing them speak languages and say coherent phrases in known languages to the people that were there. It's a sign. And the sign has two parts. The first part is it inspires awe and wonder. Like when God, Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish, right? It's like a magic trick. All of a sudden, there's bread and fish everywhere, right? It made people wonder. But the second part is the significance of it, what it means. So people are bewildered here, right? They're amazed. Like, what the heck is happening? But there's this deeper significance to it. What is it? Two, two observations. The first is that tongues were the language of the nations, They were speaking in the language of the nations. And the significance of that was up until this moment in salvific history, God has been speaking through one nation. What nation? The nation of Israel. And he's doing a new thing, right? Tongues is a new sign. You don't see tongues in the Old Testament. He's doing a new thing. He is expanding his kingdom to every nation on earth. So beforehand, the Jewish nation was not evangelistic. You could become a Jew, but you had to come into their camp You had to do all these rituals. You had to grow out your sideburns. You had to do all these crazy things to become a Jew. Now the gospel goes out to the nations. Spoken in their language, in their tongue, in their culture, the gospel goes out. God has a heart for the nations. When Jesus came, he said he came to what? Seek and save the lost. God is about a new mission, about seeking and saving the lost in the nations. So the Holy Spirit comes to bring the gospel to the nations. The second observation is this. What are they saying? In verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What's more important than how they were saying it, this incredible miracle of tongues, is what they were saying. They were declaring the mighty works of God. How many of you have heard um, St. Francis of Assisi quote, uh, preach the gospel, use words when necessary, okay? A lot of you have used that as an excuse not to share the gospel. Um, That's okay, We can preach the gospel at our words, but let me tell you something. Words are always necessary. You cannot preach the gospel without the words of the gospel. Romans 10, 14 says, how can anyone believe without someone preaching to them? Right? They can't believe if they don't hear the gospel. How can they believe unless they hear? Right? People need to hear the words of the gospel. The mark of a person who has been born again and filled with the Holy Spirit of God is they speak to others about the mighty works of God. 
Let me ask you. I'm not saying that if you aren't led and inspired and motivated to share the gospel with people, you're not a Christian. What I am saying, though, is if you're walking by the Spirit, if you're dwelling in His Word, if you're walking in prayer, if you're walking in community, if you're seeking His kingdom, if that's you, if you're walking with God, then you will have this desire to talk about it. And if you're not talking about it in your family, with your wife, with your friends at the gym, at work, if that's not coming out of your mouth, then there's a disconnect in your heart. Right? Because when, when God, when His Spirit stirs in us, it comes out of our mouth in speech. There's a, there's a significance that this is a speaking sign. He didn't do a mass healing. He didn't do that. He did a speaking sign because the Holy Spirit leads us to speak of the greatness of God. So the first mission of the Holy Spirit through us is to declare the greatness of God to the nations with uninhibited boldness. All right. And the last sign, the second sign of the mission of the Holy Spirit through his people is Joel's prophecy. So we're going to read this together. Um, So jump in in verse 13 with me. So we had this crazy scene. People are amazed and perplexed in verse 13, but others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. They're drunk, that's what they said. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he's saying this right here, what you're seeing right here, is what Joel spoke 600 years ago. Verse 17. And in the last days, that's, that's when Christ comes again, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. What are you talking about? He's talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is coming and he's pouring himself out on all flesh. So what's the significance of this? Well, did you know that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit filled people? You know that? He would fill certain people at certain times for certain tasks. So he filled the craftsmen who were making the temple with the ability to make it faster and to make it better. He filled King Saul before he became king um, with the ability to rule the nation. He filled King David. Um, He filled the sons of uh, Korah as they wrote worship songs. He filled the schools of prophets, entire schools of prophets, so they could prophesy God's words. He filled Elijah and Elisha so they could do many mighty miracles in God's name. So he would fill certain people at certain times for certain tasks. But what he's saying here, what Peter's saying, is that this is different. Because in the last days, God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. That means there's no distinction, like sons and daughters, young men, old men, servants, rich. He's going to pour out his spirit no matter, disregarding anything about you. If you're a Christian, he's going to pour his spirit out on you. He's done it. And he's going to give you gifts according to his spirit. And these gifts here, um, prophecy, vision, dreams, these are just a couple of examples to represent the whole of the spiritual gifts that we see all throughout the New Testament in Romans and 1 Corinthians, the spiritual gifts God gives. If you're a Christian, you've been filled with the spirit. If you've been filled with the Spirit, God has given you gifts so that you can serve the body. All right, gifts aren't primarily outward. Gifts are inward focused. They're, they're gifts that God gives each one of us so that we can better do our job of encouraging, of serving, of exhorting, of convicting, of counseling, of, of showing acts of mercy. Whatever it is, God gives his people gifts so they can serve the body better and build up the body. 1 Corinthians 12 says that he has given each of us the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for the building up of the body. So Christian, are you building up the body? 
Right, this is the second part of the mission of God. God's mission is both outward to the nations and inward to the church. Are you using gifts? Are you seeking your gifts so you can build up the body? Are you coming to consume? Are you coming to get? Are you coming to listen? Are you coming to worship? Or are you giving your life away to serve the men and women in this room? Right, you don't know one another yet. But as you get to know one another, are you seeking to counsel and convict and, and lead and guide and share and, and, and love one another as Christ loved you? That is the mission of the Holy Spirit through his church. And you're given gifts to do that. How do I do that? What does that look like? What, I have no idea what you're talking about, Coleman. Like, what are spiritual gifts? What are my spiritual gifts? Let me tell you, you don't sit down and pray and ask God and he tells you what they are. The way we figure out spiritual gifts is by going and serving. Okay? You go and, go and serve somebody. Go and serve the kids. Go sit down with someone and counsel them. Go encourage somebody. Go start teaching the word. Go be merciful. And when you're doing that, all of a sudden, maybe you're going to find an extra energy, an extra grace at one of those tasks, right? Maybe you're serving. It's like, man, this is fulfilling. Man, I'm actually good at this. Like, I'm not good at anything, but I'm good at this, right? It's like maybe God's given you a gift that helps. Or maybe you're, you're, you're sitting down with someone unpacking the Bible. It's like God's giving you grace to speak the word to them. Maybe God's given you a gift of teaching. Like, you discover your gifts, you start walking in them, and then figure out what they are. So the second mission of the Holy Spirit through us is to give us grace to build up the body of Christ. I'm going to finish here with a final application on the mission of the Holy Spirit. Um, I remember when I was in college, I went to UGA, go dogs. Um, I was in college, and got to say that, and uh, I was sitting in the Chick-fil-A. I was sitting with my, the guy that discipled me, his name was Frank Beadle, and we were meeting together, and, and I was telling him um, that I was depressed. I was depressed. I was stagnant in my faith. I didn't want to pray. I didn't want to read my Bible. When I did, it didn't mean anything. I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to share the gospel. I didn't want to do any of that. I was just depressed. Anyone ever felt that way? Just, just down, low, in a valley, spiritually depressed. And I was pouring out my soul to him, and he was listening to me like a good mentor does and told me he was sorry at the end when I finished, right? And then he took a sharp right, and he said, um, when was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody, Right? And I was, I was shocked. I didn't say anything. I was like, huh? He said, when, when was the last time you sat down and discipled somebody? When was the last time you served somebody? And I was severely offended at this moment, right? As we all would be, right? Where's the empathy? Like, where, where, come on, you're supposed to be empathetic. It's like, when, when was the last time you shared the gospel? And so I, I'm pouring out my heart, my depression, my, my woe is me story. I, I'm in a low place. And he, here he is telling me to go hit the campus with a tract, Right? Or, or to go try to disciple someone, or go serve someone. It's like, I'm the one with issues. Anyone feel like that sometimes? Like, you tell me to go serve. I got the issues, folks. Like, I'm, I'm struggling. How am I going to go share the gospel? How am I going to go disciple someone? How am I going to go serve somebody? And I didn't listen to him, right? I actually told my friends he was crazy. Um, and, and, but as I've grown, and as I've watched people walk through life and walk through depression, as I've watched myself do it, I realized that he was dead right, right? It's simplistic but it's true. God fills us with his spirit to, to sing and declare and preach and shout and teach and exhort and encourage other people with his word to burn away the sin and idolatry in our lives and to take the message of his love to every nation, to serve the church. That's what he's filled us with his spirit to do. And when we start doing that, when you start singing his praises, when you start telling other people about his goodness, when you start sharing your testimony, when you start serving other people with the grace that's been given to you, when you start loving the church, the Holy Spirit fills you for that task, and your heart begins to burn for him anew. Christian, the way that you get filled afresh with the Spirit is not by sitting in your car listening to Bethel worship music, right? It's by going out and serving people. 
Go share the gospel. Go disciple someone. Go read your Bible. Go pray with people. Go encourage someone. Go, go pour out um, the gifts of the Lord in you to other people. And I promise you, he'll fill you afresh with his Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit is about in our lives. This is what you were made for, and this is what you were remade for, as God has called you into his family. I want to pray for us um, as the band gets up, and then we're going to sing together. Y'all go ahead and stand up with me as I pray. Spirit, thank you so much that you aren't content to stay outside of us, that you don't remain distant, that when we grieve you, you don't leave, that when we quench you, you don't die out. Holy Spirit, thank you that, that you have come and you have spoken your word to us, that you write the law in our hearts. Thank you that you lead us tenderly and patiently, that you lead us with grace so that we could walk with you. God, I pray for men and women in this room to begin to experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. I pray that today there would be men and women here who begin to experience your leading and real practical issues in their life. They begin to experience you exposing and burning away other affections and other loves in their hearts. And burn within us, Holy Spirit. And change us from the inside out. We need you. Give us the boldness of the disciples as we go on mission. God, I pray for divine appointments with men and women in this room, with their co-workers, with their family, with their friends. God, at the gym, at the grocery store, where they begin to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus, the good news, the mighty works of God. We love you, Jesus. Praise things in your name. Amen. Thank you.